Roxane Gay's writing appears in Best American Mystery Stories 2014, Best American Short Stories 2012, and Best Sex Writing 2012. Her writing also appears in A Public Space, McSweeney's Tin House, Oxford American, American Short Fiction, Virginia Quarterly Review, and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. She is the author of the book Aiti, An Unnamed State, the New York Times best-selling Bad Feminist, the nationally best-selling Difficult Women, and the New York Times best-selling Hunger. She is also the author of World of Wakanda for Marvel. Roxane Gay, welcome to The Creative Process. You've spoken about the anonymity of the internet. You've become this public figure and begun to collaborate. Now you're working on podcasts. I understand you also work on television film projects. As you begin to collaborate with others, or you, you see it in the world, like in the world of Wakanda, or you know, your public speaking, how has it changed you as a writer? And what do you enjoy about those different processes? You know, I don't think it has changed me as a writer. I, I'm still the same writer I've always been, though, of course, with each new project. I develop and hopefully mature my skills as a writer and a thinker. Of course, the more successful you get, the more aware you become of readership. And though I primarily write for myself, and hopefully always will, certainly having to negotiate the pressure of having a readership and their expectations does become somewhat challenging. You have, uh, are there some people that are reading you um, more for your fiction? Do you find that limiting in some ways, having to divide your audiences? Uh, no, I don't think about that at all, actually. I write what I want to write, and I just trust that people will want to read it. There are, of course, people who only know I write fiction. There are people who think I only write nonfiction. I do have readers who read anything that I put out. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, that does not limit me. I feel like the, the quality of your, if your short fiction it has this, um, it has elements of your essay writing. I, I don't differentiate them so much. Uh, and this kind of intimacy that feels also very real. What, but what drew you to fairy tales? Uh, I just always enjoyed the idea that you have this person, uh, generally it's a woman in traditional fairy tales, who's living her life and dealing with some kind of struggle. And then, you know, things become even more complicated when Prince Charming figure enters the narrative. And there's always this obstacle between this couple and true love. And there's just something about that narrative arc that I find very interesting. And thinking about the original fairy tales in terms of the Grimm brothers and how those fairy tales were much darker. You've spoken about your reluctance to write Hunger. It was something that you'd have to convince yourself of. How did you finally decide that it, it needed to be written? I just recognized that I was either going to have to write the book or return the advance. And <laughs> I couldn't return the advance. I think it's it's very, it's very difficult to write about, you know, our, our bodies like any of us. I don't know, is it hard to speak about it then and to read it out loud and all those things? It's certainly challenging, but the longer I do it, the easier it becomes. Mm -hmm. So it's not as hard anymore. You have an opinion about everything that comes out so naturally. So as, as we read your essays, it just feels very intimate and I feel like I'm learning a lot at the same time. Who are you, some of your influences as you are forming your voice? I don't know, really. Um, I'm not the kind of person who can point to specific writers and say, this person was a distinct influence. I do think that a lot of how I approach writing on the sentence level was influenced by Raymond Carver. Certainly Toni Morrison and just the richness and expansiveness of her thinking and her willingness to be open and frank 
and I find her to be so deeply intelligent. And that's always a benchmark that I, of course, don't think I'll ever reach, but it set that, it set that goal for myself nonetheless because she is so good, especially in her nonfiction which doesn't get as much attention. You wrote, a, I read an essay on the, the burden of black art. Does it really feel like a burden? Yeah, it does. It's interesting because because of where you grew up and uh, sometimes I, I don't know if you would always feel like a natural spokesperson. I grew up all over the country. We moved quite a lot. My dad's company was headquartered in Omaha. We would be in Omaha and then we would move to a project. The project would finish and we would move back to Omaha. And then I went to boarding school and college on the East Coast and then went back to Nebraska for graduate school. You know, I certainly never think of myself as a spokesperson because I'm not. And in fact, it's by virtue of being black that people expect me to be the spokesperson. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something that I try to resist at all times. I loved how you wrote, but I had writing. And there I wrote myself back together. Uh, I wrote myself towards a stronger version of myself. You came to literature before your experiences. Could you speak about that a little more? Um, are you referring to my assault? Yes. Yeah, there was definitely a before and an after, and in the before, I just did not know about the world, and I did not know, there's just a lot that I did not know about the world, and so a lot of my outlook and my work, there's a before and an after, and also just in terms of my personality, there's mm -hmm. a before and an after. When you're writing, you imagine a lot, the, the before. I kind of wonder about where writing comes from and what you're sometimes trying to get back in touch with, like this, this inner voice. I loved writing and loved storytelling. And so it just was naturally there, this desire to just tell stories. And you're, you're family storytellers? Um, they supported it. Um, I don't know that they particularly understood it, but mm. my mom would take me to the library every week. My parents got me my first typewriter. Uh, they always reminded me that I needed to focus on my education and get a practical education, but they were very supportive. You're so productive and, and you, you, you write so much. I wonder when that began that you knew that... It wouldn't be just something that you would do in your spare time. I've always taken myself seriously as a writer. And I've always, even before the success, I just took myself seriously. And I knew that this is what I wanted to do. So I think it's more a question of just believing that I could be a writer and doing everything because I loved it. I always had a traditional day job, still do. Because a lot of people say that writing is difficult or it's a struggle, and I like that you've said that it's, um, it's not a pressure, it's a pressure release. Correct. Writing is fun. I enjoy it. Um, I'm not a tortured writer. Uh, I don't agonize. Like, certainly there are times when the writing comes more easily than others, and mm. I struggle with writer's block as much as anyone, but writing is pleasurable, and I'm not tormented about it. What kind of... Um games or tricks you play with yourself when you get stuck? Um, I don't. I don't have a good way of getting through it other than just writing through it. Like, the prose is not as natural or as good as um, when I'm not feeling blocked. I just do it. And sometimes I step away and go watch a movie or read the book or do something just very different from whatever it is I have going on on the page. I was afraid to ask you about popular culture because I think that I'm not, I'm not nearly as well versed on so many things. But what is um, currently um, fascinating you? 
I'm always fascinated by uh, Bravo reality television, and it has its very aspirational sheen to it. Vanderpump Rules, Below Deck, um, Million Dollar Listing, and so I'm, I'm working on a long-term, working on a book of essays about television. Oh. And so I am thinking through just how so much reality television is so very aspirational, whether it's on HGTV or Bravo or even some of these like competition reality shows. It's all about achieving something. It's all about an ambition of some kind. So that's what's fascinating me right now. In terms of uh, how people are influenced by television, in particular uh, this uh, reality television, how do you feel television and social media has been influencing people's perception of themselves? Um, I don't know. Um, I think I'm the generation that fortunately got to grow up away from social media. Mm-hmm. We did have the internet, and I started going online in college. Mm-hmm. And um, But it was still very different back then because you had to dial in with a modem, and it took forever, and it was incredibly slow, and it was mm-hmm. all text-based. So, I, you know, I don't know how it shapes people these days. I don't. No, it's it's very strange, and I I grew up around the same time, and you know, even the way it's changed. I don't know if you call it courtship now, but um, people don't believe things unless they see a picture of it, and it seems romantic. Um, when I got involved with my husband, we were sending letters. Who I don't know who sends letters now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that anticipation of waiting, I think, is kind of killed now. It can be definitely. It can be. So now with your uh, podcast project, is that? Is that a reflection of your essays, or is it different again? The podcast project, I'm doing it, I'm co-hosting a podcast with uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom, and it is basically black feminist cultural criticism, and it's going to be fun and also smart, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to look at the politics of the world we live in and also the politics of the popular culture that we can see. And television? I co-wrote the screenplay for An Untamed State, my first novel, yes. and that was set up at a studio, but now it's actually looking for a new home, right. and I'm working on a couple TV projects. All right. And I wondered how that how you adapt to those other mediums, which are so much about saying things in images and not saying things with our most articulate self. The translation from prose to film, just a different way of storytelling and thinking about the visual in addition to the spoken word. But it's in many ways, again, like storytelling is storytelling, and that's the one thing I found true across nonfiction, fiction, comic books, and now film and television. Uh, And, of course, there are different rules for each genre, but in general, you're just trying to tell a story, and you're trying to give people a sense of characters, and you're trying to make them care about those characters. I'm Gabriela Garcia-Stolfi, a student at American University majoring in communications and minoring in international relations. Here at The Creative Process, I am the Social Justice and Community Initiatives podcaster. My first interaction with Roxane Gay's work was when I was walking through a bookstore looking for something, but not knowing exactly what that meant. Sure enough, this title jumped out at me, Bad Feminist. At this time in my life, I was gradually coming to understand terms like feminist and putting names to the different societal structures I have operated in or experienced. The resonating feeling that made me pick the book and take it home followed me all throughout each page of Roxane Gay's work. Many years later, I have decided to read it again to understand how my point of view and outlooks have changed. And trust me, a lot has changed. I think this also speaks to the impact of Roxane Gay's work, 
As she mentions in the interview, Gay mainly writes for herself, and this intention pairs quite well with people who are reading for themselves in search of a better understanding of their being and where they stand in different contexts. I'd like to read an excerpt from Bad Feminist that captures the power of Roxane Gay's type of writing. I learned a long time ago that life introduces young people to situations they are no way prepared for, even good girls, lucky girls, who want for nothing. Sometimes, when you least expect it, you become the girl in the woods. You lose your name because another one is forced on you. You think you are all alone until you find books about girls like you. Salvation is certainly among the reasons I read. Reading and writing have always pulled me out of the darkest experiences in my life. Stories have given me a place in which to lose myself. They have allowed me to remember. They have allowed me to forget. They have allowed me to imagine different endings and better possible worlds. Salvation is often what we look for in many different parts of our lives, the world, and especially through art. The best way I can describe the process is like wandering through the bookstore, not knowing the exact name of what you're looking for, but you'll know it when you see it. It was this sentiment that brought me to Bad Feminists and many other pieces of work that gave me the salvation I needed at the time. It quite literally feels like rewiring the brain for the better and giving yourself somewhat of a new world to live in. It is the work of Roxane Gay and many others that give us the tools to be able to experience the salvation, especially for those in historically marginalized communities, and allow us to actually live out our lives in the way that we deserve. Yeah, so I, I wonder how you, how you did it. Because, I mean, the thing about your essays is that you're exploring every thought and, you know, the inner voices. So, I mean, have you also always been a visual person? No, I've always thought more in words than visuals. For a lot of writers, uh, you know, writing, I understand it as a 3D process too. Like, you're really imagining the story. And then for filmmakers, they often speak, influence your imagination. Um, I don't know that it influenced my imagination. It just opened up my world to see that there was a place where blackness was the norm. Um, because in most of the places we lived, we lived in predominantly white suburbs, and we were the only ones. Everyone was black, and there was there were different shades of black, but everyone was black. And, and so it just showed me what was possible for people who looked like me in a way that I would have never found in the United States growing up the way I did. Did you have to do a lot of research for that? How, what was your organizing principle as you approached the novel? Uh, I did not do a lot of research um, because I didn't want to read stories about people who had been kidnapped and co-opt those stories in some way. And so I just used my imagination. Uh, the research I did was on details, like what kind of beer would the kidnappers be drinking? And, mm -hmm. you know, if they were going to use a newspaper to um, offer proof of life, what paper would they use? So I was more interested in the details. Um, those kinds of details because I wanted them to be accurate. Are you going to be working on an, another novel or do you prefer the, the shorter form? Yeah, I'm working on two novels right now. Two at the same time. <laughs> that's, that's hard. I work on multiple projects at once and um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I admire that because of being true to that voice. Or maybe it just makes it fresh and you, you don't indulge yourself so much so that you can save one for one project and give um, insights to another project. No, I just, uh, you know, I wish I could say that it was like all about inspiration and stuff, but right at this point in my career, sadly, um, I'm very deadline driven. You know, I have so many projects coming out that I just work on the one that's the most urgent. I don't really get to 
enjoy um, just leisurely creation. You know, it's strange. I'm, I guess in your publishing chronology, um, Difficult Women came out recently, but I guess you wrote it before? Uh, Difficult Women was actually one of the first books I ever tried to sell. Um, it was called something different back then, but it is a book that I wrote. Um, the short stories, there were some of my earlier short stories, and then a couple newer ones that I put together into a collection. And then once Untamed State did well, my publisher made an offer on it. And so it was the first book I wrote and the last, one of the later books that I sold. It's interesting, just as, as the title, I mean, Difficult Women. So when I was coming up with the title, I was thinking about how oftentimes when women express feelings, when women are complicated, when they don't do what people want them to do, they are considered difficult. So I very much want to push back against that. No, and it's important to do that. I think it's like the opposite of difficult. When I see a woman or like someone who is showing them they're forthright and they're honest in their opinions, they give others the permission to speak their minds and to be their full, messy, original selves. I don't, I think that's easy. I agree. Yeah, we do, but most people don't, unfortunately. I don't know that, I mean, because we're coming up to um, 2020, but I just think about, you know, how much, how far we have to go. I and mean, what do you feel that you really want to change or will help? And what do you appreciate that we have achieved in the 100 years since women's had the right to vote? Well, I mean, I don't know that much has changed because we're still legislating women's bodies. Just yesterday, the state of Ohio um, passed legislation um, banning abortion after the first heartbeat. And mm. it's the most rigid abortion law in the country. We've come so far, but have we? Uh, as long as women's bodies are so legislatable, we have a long, long way to go. And so that's the very most important thing I think we need to address is that once and for all, abortion and access to birth control have to be off the table. But now we see many states who are tightening these abortion laws, and what they're really trying to do is um, illegal, but they're doing it anyway. And we need to pass the Equal Rights Amendment, which still has not been passed. And we need to, I think one of the most beneficial things we could do as a a society for women is have subsidized health care and subsidized child care. So it's always important to acknowledge progress, but we should not acknowledge progress in such a way that we become comfortable with the status quo. I I wouldn't like to go back 100 years. I mean, I can't even imagine that, the things that we'd be dealing with. Question from one of our producers of the role of the artist in society. You know, it's not something I think about, but I do think that artists oftentimes reflect what we value and what we should value in ways that are very interesting and in the best art, thought-provoking and uncomfortable. And I think it's important for artists to do that, um, to challenge us. To, to really make us think critically in ways that just moving through our day-to-day lives, we probably won't. And that's one of the reasons I like going to museums, for example. I don't mm-hmm. always understand everything I'm seeing, but I'm certainly thinking. And I like the way that's inspired. When I go to the theater, I'm thinking and I'm engaging. And uh, I just appreciate that. And But still your favorite way of learning, I mean, you speak about learning through images, but is it books are still your primary way of learning? Oh, absolutely. I'm always going to be a reader first and foremost. 
And you, you mentioned um, libraries, and this libraries and bookstores that are really well closing. Um, I mean, do you remember the libraries you went to as a, as a girl? And what do you feel about that, the different ways people are receiving text? I, you know, when I was a kid, a library was just this amazing, like it was the whole world mm-hmm. right there in this one building. And I could go anywhere and I could learn about anything. Um, so it was just incredible. And I think libraries still are that. And increasingly, they serve as these really great community centers. They do so much to serve communities. Certainly, my writing, my English teacher in high school, uh, Rex McGuinn, was really important to me because he saw something in my writing and encouraged me to take myself seriously. Um, I don't really have a lot of collaborators. Um, mm-hmm. Writing is a fairly solitary thing. So certainly I have editors who are invaluable to my writing process and and other, you know, the work I write. Um, I read everything, and um, I read a lot of fiction, and so I don't have traditional influences. Um, I just borrowed from everything and opened myself to everything. I was thinking about when you um, were starting um, Paying and how that was like um, creating a platform and the different... Oh, editorially, yeah. yeah. My um, friend Matt Siegel, we mm-hmm. started Pink, and uh, we just wanted to create a literary home for people who were doing different kinds of work, and especially experimental work, um, challenging work that would not necessarily find a home in the more traditional literary magazines. And it grew very quickly into great magazine, and that was in large part to our incredible contributors who would bring us their different work and trust us with it. I've read you described yourself as having been, uh, you know, kind of a loner or isolated, and I was wondering when that, when did you have that turning point, that you just became more engaged in in the world and like... I don't see it as that. I guess I don't see it as that. I've Mm. always, I still think of myself as kind of a quiet loner. Oh. Um, <laughs> but you do yeah, a good job at impersonating an outgoing. <laughs> oh, I do. Yeah. I do. It, it, it comes at great cost because I'm actually very shy and very quiet in my day-to-day life. I'm not much mm-hmm. of a talker. Uh, and my career has forced me to to, to force extroversion uh, when it is not my natural state. Is it because, as I was wondering about this, you know, people who find an early home in books... And sometimes, I guess, in comparison to books, people can be disappointing, yes? Uh, people can be deeply disappointing, yes. I mean, I certainly found that when I was growing up. I, You know, the world of literature, because you really are getting inside someone's mind and there's this impression that the people that you meet are really not telling them, telling you what's inside. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, in a way, I feel like it can... Um, uh, lead young people to you know false impressions about you know what exchanges can be. I mean, if only everyone could speak to you as though the way books and the level of intimacy that books do, but that that's hard to get. I don't know how long it takes. It is hard to get, and I think it also would be kind of overwhelming mm-hmm. um, if the intimacy that I found in books was present in every interaction I had outside of books. Um, I think that would be for me a lot to handle. Yeah, it's better in a book where you can close the pages, close the cover. Yes. And we touched on the way the digital has changed the way we interact with ourselves and our imaginations. 
what do you want to make sure that we don't forget as you go into this digital age? Um, I don't think that the digital age is as much a threat as people make it out to be. Because I remember several years ago there was quite a panic about ebooks, oh. and people just thought the sky was falling. And the reality for me is that I sell probably three to four times as many print books as I do ebooks. There's something about the tangible artifact that people love, and I think we should trust humanity and trust people a little bit more. Certainly, there are people who are willing to just abandon the physical artifact and whether it's books or anything else and just live in a virtual world. But I think more of us appreciate the tactile experience of being in the world. And I, that's the one thing we never need to, that we should never forget that as seductive as the virtual world can be, um, where there are no or fewer boundaries and where you can be anything and you can be anyone. Mm -hmm. um, there's something very important about the tactile world and being grounded in the tactile world. And so far, humanity has not lost sight of that collectively. And I do not think that we will. I remember seeing images of how you um, began as a writer and the very early typewriter. And how are you working now? I, I write exclusively on a computer. I don't do anything else. You don't print out, and I'm just we're talking about tactile and you know, as a, you know, ways of visualization or things like that. No, I do not. Thank you, Roxanne Gay, for uh, adding your voice to the creative process, for all you've done to empower women, people of color, and share your stories with you know, honesty. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Gabriela Garcia Stolfi. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.